From Weimar Berlin's cabaret scene to golden age, Hollywood and beyond, Marlene Dietrich carved a distinctive path for herself and crafted an iconic star image. Hello and welcome to Footnoting History. I'm Lucy and on this episode, I'll be discussing Marlene Dietrich, star of film and cabaret, defier of Nazis, a legend in her own time. Before beginning, a note. If you usually listen to Footnoting History along with your children, we're delighted to have you, and also you might want to vet this one. I'm not going to go into detail about either fascist violence or Dietrich's many lovers, but both will be referenced. As I was preparing for this episode, I was trying to remember how I first learned myself about Marlene Dietrich. The first film of hers I saw was Golden Earrings, a largely forgotten melodrama in which her character, a Romani woman, gets involved in spycraft, plays the zither, and romances, hilariously, an uptight British officer who is enormously discomfited by her sexuality, her hair oil, and her habit of eating stew with her fingers, to say nothing of the zither. Spoiler alert, he gets less discomfited. The first film of hers I saw after adolescence was The Blue Angel, and I distinctly remember asking myself how this woman managed to be sexy while making chicken noises. But I first learned about Marlene Dietrich before seeing either film from an elderly man in my childhood church. Mr. Hobbs used to tell me stories about his experiences as an airman and later a prisoner of war in World War II. He knew precisely three phrases in German. One was about potatoes, one was about six soldiers, and the third, this was the anecdote's surprise twist, he didn't learn until after the war. Sag mir wo die Blumen sind was the title of an anti-war ballad written by Pete Seeger and made famous by Marlene Dietrich. She performed it first at a UNICEF gala in 1962. The next year she sang it in Israel, breaking the country's taboo concerning public use of the German language. She sang it in each of her three languages throughout the world. The life of Marlene Dietrich was obviously incredible. Investigating it can also give us insight into the history of queerness, stardom, and international politics in the 20th century. Coverage of a recent museum exhibit focused on photographs of Marlene Dietrich asked the question, how did she get away with being, well, Marlene Dietrich? And while a lot of scholarly ink has been spilt on this question, part of the answer seems to boil down to indefinable and irresistible charisma. As one of her biographers wrote, she imagined who Marlene Dietrich might become, and then became it, and then became more. Another biography begins by enumerating the labels most often applied to her. Vamp. Diva. Legend. But this image crafting was something that was applied retroactively to the early stages of her career. In the 1920s, on the stages of Berlin and Vienna, Marlene Dietrich sang and danced in chorus lines and worked very, very hard. While industriousness can, of course, frequently be part of star-making narratives, a robust work ethic was part of Dietrich's character. Two decades later, as an established Hollywood star, she drove her fellow actors to near distraction with her insistence on actually learning to play the zither. In her early years, 
This hard work took less conspicuous forms. In 1927, she was part of a chorus line. The plot of the review was sensationalist, but the moment after her character shot a gangster got the attention of a critic. He wrote admiringly of how Dietrich suggested both a complex interior life and a kind of aloofness, even from the violence she herself had inflicted. Similar compliments would be paid her in the future, but she was still part of a chorus line. When her then-lover, Willi Faust, got her a screen test for a film, the director described her face as unphotographable and Marlene herself as talentless. Seldom, of course, has a man been more wrong. Her lover stood out for her getting the part anyway, and the film, Café Electric, opened to bad reviews, with one critic saying that neither the director nor the actors would ever be heard from again. Interestingly, when Café Electric got its German premiere, the reviews were bad for different reasons, particularly when it came to her performance. Her shoulders, complained a reviewer, were too muscular. Moreover, he complained that the ingenue role just did not work for an actress whose screen presence was characterized by robust gracefulness and even lascivious sauciness. These qualities, too, would often be attributed to her. But in this particular moment, the world still didn't know what to make of Marlene Dietrich. Conflicting accounts of her work and personality abounded. But she was magnetic on stage. She wasn't Berlin's most famous singer or dancer or star turn. But she was increasingly unmistakable. When I covered the career of Anna Mae Wong for this podcast, I mentioned a 1928 photo featuring Wong, Marlene Dietrich, and Leni Riefenstahl. I'll get to Dietrich versus the Nazis later, I promise, but right now I'd like to talk about one of her hits of 1928. It's important to note here that Weimar Berlin, while economically depressed, was a cultural hotspot, and there was no art form more typical of 1920s Berlin than the cabaret. Sometimes scurrilous, often satirical, cabaret was irreverent, funny, and more culturally complex than Hollywood's or Netflix's version of it. And Dietrich's hit duet with Margot Lyon was part of a review. The song relies at the outset on an ambiguity similar to that of the term girlfriend in contemporary American English, but then it becomes increasingly sly and increasingly explicit. Oh, my best girlfriend, they sing together. So beautiful, so loyal, so sweet. Isn't it great how well they get along together? Isn't it almost exhausting how well they get along together. Then they both get in an argument in which the husband of one of them appears as a rival before ending in a harmonious duet between the two women once more. This is exhibit A in how Marlene Dietrich becomes a queer icon. It's also characteristic of cabaret in the ways that it makes subtext basically text, though also relying on insinuation in performance, and this comes through in the recorded version. If you're wondering, Wow, why haven't I heard of Berlin's 1920s cabaret scene? Well, it was politically pointed, and a lot of its composers and stars were queer and or Jewish. Once again, the Nazis ruined everything. I should mention here that a lot of this music has had revivals recently in really interesting ways. Yet another potential future podcast topic. But to stick with Marlene Dietrich, it's as a cabaret singer that she thrives, and it's as a cabaret singer that she gets what would become a star-making film role. Der Blaue Engel, or The Blue Angel, was based on one of Heinrich Mann's social issue novels, satirizing both respectable social institutions 
and social hypocrisy about women's sexuality. If you're thinking, wow, that sounds culturally relevant, yeah, absolutely. It starred Emil Jannings, one of German cinema's biggest stars, giving a performance that got him awards internationally. The director, Josef von Sternberg, needed a woman to play the cabaret singer Naughty Lola, with whom Janning's repressed schoolmaster becomes infatuated. Having seen Niedrich in a cabaret, in which she had exactly one line, he decided that she reminded him of the vibrant female performers in the paintings of Toulouse-Lautrec, and arranged an audition. Dietrich was deeply unimpressed. She'd been in films before. She'd even had starring roles before. Besides, she told Sternberg she'd seen his films, and she didn't think he knew how to direct women. Sternberg retorted by asking why he'd heard such bad things about her career. And this, believe it or not, was the beginning of an iconic star-director partnership. So the film, in the end, was named after the cabaret star instead of the professor, and the role, with original songs written for it by Friedrich Holländer, launched Dietrich as film star and cultural icon. As Barbara Costa has argued, one of the reasons the film works so well is that the tension between the professor and the singer is also a tension between high and low art, and between two very different visions of German identity and German culture. It's worth remembering here that cinema itself at this point in time was far from respectable. It was, most agreed, definitely not art. It was mass entertainment. It was, gasp, reshaping people's minds and distracting them from work. Yes, apparently it's possible to have a cultural panic about movies using the same language as cultural panics about the internet. And movie audiences were coded as primarily both working class and female, which was another source of anxiety. Modern girls, lamented one Waldau Schönbrunn, threatened to make classic German literature and its values incomprehensible through existing, with their unromantic, untraditional, and sexually open attitudes. The critical reception of Der Blaue Engel at the time condemned it as in many ways superficial. One critic said that Marlene Dietrich's legs were very impressive, but that they were part of a project that concealed and distorted reality. Others complained that the explicit condemnation of authoritarianism and militarism present in Mann's 1905 novel, and so obviously relevant to their own historical moment, was removed from the film in order to make it more palatable. But I tend to be persuaded by Costa's argument that Der Blaue Engel is participating in the cultural debates of Weimar Germany, not merely avoiding them. The professor is depicted as deeply attached to traditional, sentimental German folk songs. No man who whistles Ach wie ist's möglich dann to his pet bird and likes Enchen von Tarau is going to cope well with a woman who sings lyrics as I'm naughty Lola and every man loves me, but I don't let any of them touch my pianola and the equally lively, give me a man who knows how to kiss and will do it, too. I think it's a genuinely great film, taut and smart and quietly chilling. And Dietrich, three years after that unsuccessful film test in Vienna, is never less than entirely magnetic. She is also extremely matter-of-fact about her own physicality and sexuality. This matter-of-factness, this refusal of shame, both fascinates and repels the professor at least as much as her sexuality itself. As Stephen Bach has observed, all Dietrich's musical numbers in the film were not only shot live, but as long, uninterrupted takes among the simplest sequences Sternberg ever shot. 
but the exultant, matter-of-fact sexuality of Lola Lola, which would do so much to secure Dietrich's reputation and the films, absolutely terrified the higher-ups of the Berlin film studio Ufa. The original premiere was cancelled. The admins wanted moral clarity, and they did not, they decided, want Marlene Dietrich. So Dietrich signed a Paramount contract and was on a boat to New York within hours of taking her fur-wrapped bows at the film's eventual Berlin premiere. Popular reception of the film was much warmer than that of the art critics. An important Berlin newspaper praised it as the first work of art in sound film, and Dietrich herself as the experience. And Marlene Dietrich sailed for the US and Hollywood. The crafting of her stateside star image was both chaotic and deeply purposeful. This was the heyday of the studio system, and Paramount photographed its new star in top hat, white tie, and tails. Dietrich sent copies of the photos to Berlin, autographed Daddy Marlene. Her first Hollywood picture, Morocco, is not a great film. For one thing, the sexually and socially daring source material had to be toned down to what Dietrich herself called weak lemonade. It had an exotic setting, a glamorous central role for Dietrich, and none other than Gary Cooper as the extremely pretty legionnaire with whom she had headline and scandal-making chemistry. The plot is slight. Dietrich is not. The most famous moment in the film, which somehow got past the censors, is when Dietrich, as cabaret artist Amy Jolly, takes a flower from a woman in her audience and kisses her, not just on the mouth, but passionately, before giving the flower to Gary Cooper, who puts it behind his ear. Morocco broke box office records, and Dietrich was nominated for an Oscar. The record of Dietrich's subsequent Hollywood successes, also linked to Sternberg, is well documented, and the years following Morocco were packed with film projects, love affairs, and transatlantic voyages. Dietrich and her husband, Rudi Ziva, were friends, co-parents, and very far from monogamous. Paramount producers didn't mind thin plots made even thinner to pass the censors. They had Dietrich, after all, and she was indubitably a star. But Blonde Venus in 1932 managed to be simultaneously lurid, unpopular, and just bad despite the presence of both Dietrich and a young Cary Grant. So Dietrich made a film called The Song of Songs, accompanied by nude statues as promo materials, while Sternberg went to Berlin to see about making another Ufa picture with the woman he regarded as his star. While Sternberg was in Berlin, the Reichstag burned. Weeks later, so did books. Not just those of Hirschfeld's Sexual Institute, but of any German authors and some others, deemed insufficiently moral. This category included Heinrich Mann, author of the novel which had become Der Blaue Engel. Even before they had come to political power, the Nazis had very noisily condemned both Der Blaue Engel and Dishonored, another Dietrich film. Now, Berlin for Sternberg and Marlene was out of the question. Nevertheless, she wanted to see her native city again. Landing in Paris in a pearl-gray man's suit resulted in jeering and the threat of arrest. Although Dietrich had been wearing trousers in public for years, this still counted legally as cross-dressing. Even in Paris, the police disapproved both of Marlene's style of dress and of the loyalties and desires it signaled. 
Despite the police surveillance, however, Dietrich stayed in Paris, reuniting with old friends, now in exile from Berlin. After Paris and Vienna, where she was adored, she returned to Hollywood, to her Paramount contract, and to Sternberg. Sternberg filming Dietrich as Catherine the Great under the Hayes Code resulted, perhaps inevitably, in a film that is visually stunning, frequently surreal, and not infrequently camp. And after finishing filming, Marina returned on her own to Berlin, where she still had family. She secured an exit visa for her husband, Rudi, but while the Nazis condemned her as a German actress who has shown a preference for prostitute roles in America, they didn't go so far as to revoke her citizenship. Their PR campaign was aimed at either getting her back to Germany or successfully ruining her reputation. I'm skipping over a lot of classic Hollywood drama here because I want to focus on two accelerating and complementary trends. Dietrich's artistic independence and her demands for star-worthy salaries, partly in order to support friends, family, and acquaintances fleeing the Nazi regime. In the British film Night Without Armor, she played a political refugee herself. This was fairly typical for the late 30s. Films wouldn't be directly about the current political situation, they'd just be about suspiciously apt historical analogues. After the film was finished, but before it was released, Rudolf Hess came to Dietrich's hotel from Berlin. Marlene refused to see him for days. When the conversation did take place, the offer was that she could name her price to act in Berlin. Now, Hess was not only high-ranking in the Nazi party, he was deputy Führer. The stakes of the offer were clear. Marlene's response was not just a terse never. It was her decision to take the first steps towards American citizenship shortly after her return to Hollywood. William Randolph Hearst's media empire ran the headline, Dietrich deserts fatherland. The Nazi press was, of course, vitriolic, claiming that Dietrich's association with, quote, the film Jews of Hollywood, unquote, made her wholly un-German. The Hollywood box office was nervous about Marlene, but she didn't cease to be a star. She continued her trips across the Atlantic, though an attempt to make films in France came to nothing. She made her comeback in, of all things, a Western, Destry Rides Again, and on set, she cast her first vote as an American citizen. The trailer reminded audiences that they had read about, heard about, wondered about Dietrich. The movie was a hit, and both in that and her subsequent film, Seven Sinners, Dietrich cheerfully riffs on her own star image, practicing seduction and crooning musical numbers. In Seven Sinners, she also wears not only a suit, but naval uniform. I think she wears it better than co-star John Wayne, but that's a matter of taste. Because of the ways ageism still affects women's acting careers, I think it's also important to note that Marlene, almost 40, is still being cast in romantic lead roles. Alongside this renaissance of her film career, Dietrich was far less conspicuously involved in charity work as well as privately funding refugees. I am, again, skipping over a lot of Hollywood drama. The pictures Marlene made in the next few years were not good. The reviews, however, were more consistently so. It's not just that she's mesmerizingly beautiful, but that she was also dedicated enough to hard work to put in solid performances in films that otherwise aren't. While she had been negotiating her film career and international politics simultaneously for years, things were to change when the US joined the Second World War. Dietrich was on the radio selling war bonds less than two weeks after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. 
She sold bonds at rallies, on street corners, and in bars, making four national tours. She also appeared in nightclubs until FDR personally forbade her from employing what he called this sort of prostitution technique. She acquiesced, did sketch comedy on film with Orson Welles, and developed a stage show that she toured around military bases. While making a film in which she played a Macedonian concubine who could not be called a concubine in a Baghdadi harem that could not be called a harem, she was simultaneously spending evenings at the Hollywood canteen, not just appearing on stage, but doing everything from dishwashing to dancing. Then she left Hollywood altogether. She accompanied her friend and lover Jean Gabin to his embarkation with the Free French Naval Forces and continued to New York to await her orders from the USO. And in the spring of 1944, Marine flew out. As a member of the USO, she traveled from Casablanca to Rabat to Algiers, performing two shows a day and sometimes on her own, also in hospitals. In Algiers, she reunited with Gabin, as a result of which she was late to one of her performances. She interrupted the announcement of her absence by running up the aisle of the theater and already beginning to change out for her street clothes, greeted by rapturous, raucous applause. Before long, Malena was off again, with the laborious Italian campaign across the Mediterranean and up towards Rome. She was directly behind the front lines, and was always, afterwards, to speak of this as the most important work of her life. When Allied troops landed in Normandy on June 6th, she got to announce it. And the adoring GIs, she said, were her favorite audience. Ingrid Bergman recorded in her autobiography that when, after VE Day, she encountered Dietrich outside a hotel in Europe, Dietrich looked her up and down and said, So, now you come, now that it's safe. And Bergman said, that was her right. Back in New York, Dietrich was asked what she thought about the collapse of the Third Reich. Her response was that the Germany she had known no longer existed, and that she did not, could not think of it. But she had sung Lili Marlene to wounded soldiers in each of her three languages. The fact that the song first recorded as The Girl Under the Lantern is known as Lili Marlene owes much to Dietrich. It began its life in German, causing the U.S. Office of War Information some consternation. Published in 1937 and first recorded in 1939, it became a staple of the Nazi propaganda machine. But it was popular with soldiers of all forces, and recorded by Dietrich at the request of the OSS. After the war, Dietrich made a point of attending the Nuremberg trials, as well as returning to a devastated Berlin. Her wartime activities were recognized both by her adopted country and others. She received the Presidential Medal of Freedom, was made a member and later a chevalier of France's Légion d'honneur, and also received a knightly order from Belgium. The upheavals of the traumatized post-war world are reflected to some extent in films such as A Foreign Affair and Golden Earrings. But Dietrich would make the next phase of her career where she had spent the first, on the stage. Some of her pre-fame recordings were re-released by popular demand in 1950. Ernest Hemingway once said that if she had nothing more than her voice, she could break your heart with it. And from the mid-50s onwards, for over 20 years, the woman who had been Naughty Lola and so many others was, in sequent splendor, Marlene, singing songs from three decades in new arrangements, helping to launch the career of Burt Bacharach in the process. On stages around the world, she made her first fabulous entrance to the song she had first sung more than 20 years earlier. In English, falling in love again. And audiences did. Moreover, these were multi-generational audiences, not just those who had already loved her for decades. 
I would happily read a book devoted to this alone. Live recordings showcase audience laughter at now invisible innuendo. Some videos do survive, and I recommend them, but the magic of live performance is, of course, irreplaceable. Dietrich stopped performing only after a fall from stage in her 70s. While her retirement to her Paris apartment is often framed as a Garbo-like retreat, this was instead the result of health and mobility issues. Via telephone, she maintained lively connections with friends and continued to give interviews. There's a rather wonderful clip of an interview that she gave to a German station at the age of 89, where she reminisces about her early career in Berlin and her association with Josef von Sternberg. Sternberg had been in Hollywood, she explains, so he was spoiled. Her sense of pacing and anecdote is impeccable. Her stage training, still telling. And though she's being asked about herself, she takes time to praise the depth and range of talent present at the Babelsberg Studios in the late Weimar Republic. It's a mini masterclass in star command and undiva-ish behavior. She is buried in Berlin, the city that was her home. Preceding the burial, unusually, were two funerals. At the Madeleine, in Paris, her coffin was draped in the French tricolour, festooned with medals. For its next journey, it was given the American flag, honoring her chosen citizenship and decorated war work. And finally, in Berlin, it received Germany's post-war flag. The symbolism of these multiple ceremonies with their significations was noted even at the time, not just by historians. Robert Gottlieb wrote in The New Yorker that in Paris, the Dietrich being honored, Francis Dietrich, was the international figure, the friend of states, men, and writers, the soldat, the legend. In Berlin, the occasion was more fraught. Neo-Nazis issued threats. A gay and lesbian fan group unfurled a banner. The service was attended by family and friends. The grave was visited by thousands. Which Dietrich was being honored? The resistance hero? The woman who defied the government of her native country? The queer icon? The mother? Grandmother? The loyal friend? Her own choice for an epitaph evades this. Her epitaph is a single line from a semi-obscure German poet, which translates, I stand here at the border of my lifetime. The poem, as a reflection of a philosophy, is remarkable, expressing the speaker's ultimate loyalty to their own principles. And while the world mourned many versions of Dietrich, she chose, extraordinary to the last, to have only a single name engraved on her gravestone, Marlene, conflating to the last, the star, the iconic song, and the woman described as a wonderfully unconventional lover, philosopher, she remains imperishably an icon. This and all of our footnoting history episodes are available captioned on our YouTube channel. Thanks to Kate and all the others who help support us via Ko-fi and Patreon. And until next time, remember, the best stories are in the footnotes.